I would say there wasn't a specific day that I said, okay, everything changes. I would say it was more like a feeling. That's Ray Zahab. More on his transformation coming up next. Welcome to Happily Ever Active, where we crack the consistency code with fitness tips on motivation, mindset, and much, much more. Now, here's your host, author of Feel Like It, and the guy with the silent O, Kelly Dell. Hi, everyone. My name is Kelly. Welcome to an interview edition of the show. Happily Ever Active is a show about the mental side of active living, and those of you loyal listeners out there No, I look at fitness from a sustainability perspective, including the beliefs and the skills that are part of a lifestyle that's built for the long haul. And spoiler alert, in the end, we stick to things that move us. More than that, we're compelled to grow the role of fitness in our lives when we include more things we actually like and perform these things in likable ways, and even include likable people along the way in our journeys. Well, November is an exciting month, not just for today's episode, it being the first of the month. But I've got a couple of other cool interviews for you guys, including Brogan Graham, who's the co-founder of November Project. And locally, off mic, I'm co-launching a speaker series in Ottawa called F-Talks on the 30th, so the last day of the month. Each F-Talk event aims to discuss the progressive fringes of topics that affect our daily lives like food, finance, and fitness. You know, all the F-words. Well, at least many of them anyway. And as a panelist for the kickoff, I'll certainly be talking about the relationship between loyalty and love when it comes to active living. And that sets up today's episode perfectly because, honestly, you're unlikely to meet a person more in love with the process than my guest today and what a process he's lived. Are you ready for this? His journey has taken him to some of the most inhospitable corners of the planet. Just listen to some of these expeditions. He ran across the Sahara Desert in 111 days. He ran across the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, 2,000 kilometers in total. In 2018, he and fellow adventurer Stefano Gregoretti of Italy ran the length of Namibia. Yeah, that's a country, a whole country. Lightly supported, I might add, crossing the Namib Desert, totaling approximately 1,800 kilometers, all on foot. But if you think he's just addicted to sand dunes and salt flats, Let's flip the script here. He's also completed a 650-kilometer run across the frozen surface of the world's deepest lake in Siberia called Lake Baikal. In 2009, he, Kevin Vallely, and Richard Weber set a world record for the fastest trek to the South Pole, 33 days, smashing the old record by five days. No skis, all on foot. And it's uphill the whole way, apparently. He even gave a TED Talk on the adventure, which I'll link to in the show notes. And more recently, in 2017, he headed to the other pole, where his team traveled 1,000 kilometers across Baffin Island under even colder temperatures than his South Pole expedition. He describes that as one of his most difficult expeditions to date. And pardon the pun here, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. Unbelievably. And numerically, my guest today has accumulated over 15,000 kilometers on his feet through all these adventures. And he's not stopping. In fact, through his organization called Impossible to Possible, he's only been growing his passion by helping youth push their limits outdoors by using adventure as an empowering vehicle for learning. By the way, this is by far officially the longest introduction I've had to do for any of my guests. So today I welcome 
modern-day explorer Ray Zahab. Ray lives in Chelsea, Quebec, which is just outside of the nation's capital here in Ottawa. And if the name sounds familiar, his excursions have been featured on many major television outlets, most recently on CTV here in Canada. And his Sahara Traverse was also a documentary, which was narrated by none other than Matt Damon. Honestly, I just feel so lucky that I caught up with Ray because... Really, the guy doesn't seem to be still for very long. So let's learn more about Ray, the origins of his story journey, and even what his kids think of his extreme exploits. Let's have a listen. I'm joined now by Ray Zahab. Ray, thank you for taking the time. I know you have such a busy schedule and you've been in just the last couple of weeks in several locations and you're finally home sleeping in your bed. I got to imagine that feels pretty good. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, there's no place like home they say, right? You know, so it's, it's always, it's always good to be back home. And I, I, I love where we live, I, you know, in the nation's capital, national capital region, you got four seasons. I just love that, you know, and yeah, sure. You know, you're, you're sad to see the summer go, but then falls here and then all of a sudden winter's here and you're skiing and doing all kinds of other stuff. So I'm stoked for, for change of seasons. You pretty much nailed it. Your backyard is, uh, you know, a great place to be an outdoor enthusiast, but I don't think enthusiast really captures what you are or what you've become because you're a modern day explorer. You've done some really epic excursions and I can't possibly go over all of them, but I do want to definitely talk about today is the evolution of such a, a lifestyle and now being a professional explorer. And even going back, if you could try somehow to see back way back when you were a kid, if there was any inkling whatsoever that this is where you'd be now having just turned 50 years old. You know, I distinctly remember I'm one of these weird people that can remember everything about their childhood. So I remember being young very clearly. And, you know, we lived, we grew up in uh, West Carlton, just sort of on the edge of Canada and West Carlton. And uh, we grew up, uh, my parents had you know, a hobby farm, basically. So we had horses and rabbits and a garden and, you know, huge hay fields and all that jazz. And so we'd spend our summers outside. I mean, that's just, there was nothing else to do, right? I mean, you have to remember, this was pre-video games, pre-everything in the 70s, right? And so, you know, your nearest neighbor was, the, 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 you know, kids that were our age were like 25 acres away. So, you know, you'd cross those 25 acre hay fields, get to their house if you if if your parents weren't willing to drive you over there in the summer holidays, right? So, you know, you sort of, you by nature explored growing up, I guess, in the countryside, but I never saw myself doing this. I mean, you know, fast forward through you know, high school and, and, and not, you know, completing college and all this jazz, you know, and, and I found myself just sort of getting into a negative spot where, I mean, many of us in that time drank too much, smoked too much, did everything too much, but I just kind of stuck to that for one reason or another. And, you know, um, I had great influences around me, amazing people that were like athletes and stuff, but I just never saw myself as, as them until the day that I decided that I was going to change my life. And I spoke about this yesterday at this conference that I was speaking at is that the hardest and most difficult things, the most challenging things that you do in your life really are relative to you. Like I, I tell people like the hardest thing I ever did was quit smoking so that I could, you know, pursue a different life. And I've had people come up to me at the end of a, an event and say, big deal, I quit smoking in a day. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that hard to do. And I'm like, yeah, it took me three years. You can't compare yourself to someone else. Like, you know, that, that struggle, however you see it, can be very real mm-hmm. for people. And so for me, that was a very difficult thing to overcome. But once I got into doing the things 
that my brother, my younger brother, John, is the one who got me into all this stuff. Once I started doing the things he was doing, it really opened up a whole new world to me. It was basically like being reborn at the age of 30. And that's an interesting metaphor, the rebirth, because I just finished reading a great book called The Longest Race by Ed Ayers. He actually started the book by talking about his experiences at the start line of an ultra distance race. And he says this, he goes, I don't remember being born, but I wonder whether the moment you push off from the starting line of a long distance foot race might be a replay of that launch of a new life. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a great analogy. I mean, you know, I think anything that we do in life doesn't have to be a long distance foot race, but anything that we do in life where we make a drastic change or we start something new or we take a chance really opens up the possibilities to redefining who you are, right? Because, I mean, the reality is, I mean, life is actually really simple in the sense that you make decisions, there's cause and effect. I mean, you either sit on the fence or you make shit happen, you know, and and uh, really it's, it's, it becomes a, everything after that is relative to the individual. Like I've always been truly inspired. Like I'm totally inspired by artists and musicians that these people can be so creative and make this amazing stuff, right? Well, they had to start somewhere and, and it's because they made a decision. They took a risk to try and do something that for them was a personal risk, but also had a very personal gain. You know, and the outcome was unknown. So I spent 30 years of my life, the first 30 years of my life being completely risk adverse. I wouldn't even take a chance of doing something new for fear that it wouldn't turn out right or others, what others would think or like I was a negative outcomes guy, you know, and now I look at it completely different and running has taught me that. I think in general, we underestimate ourselves at what we're capable of doing. And really it's about it's about taking chances. Look, at I do expeditions, and, and for sure, sometimes they're dangerous. But I plan the craziness of my plan, and I plan, I plan, I plan like crazy for as long as I can um, within a reasonable time frame, and I get the logistics right so that I can make it as safe as I possibly can when I go on expedition. It's a balancing act. You, you take risks, but you calculate them, and you make things happen. You set a goal. And I I posted this on my social media the other day. You you set a goal and you reverse engineer it. You work backwards from that goal. And you're like, okay, these are the steps that it's going to take me to get to that goal. And maybe I can see some of the steps right now. Maybe I can't. But when you get on that path towards that goal, amazing things start to happen because you just, you know, without sounding too flaky, you open up the universe to things. And when you go back to, you know, that transition from, uh, you know, the, the pack a day smoker, sort of the unhappier version of yourself, let's just call it, was, is there a moment or a time or a conversation you had with someone where you said like, okay, this has got to end? As human beings, we're always looking for the magic pill or the defining moment or the epiphany, right? I and mean, yeah, there's been a series of those kind of things that have happened, but you don't really realize them at the time. You realize them kind of in retrospect. I would say there wasn't a specific day that I said, okay, everything changes. I would say it was more like a feeling of just sick of being unhappy mm-hmm. and pretending that I was happy and trying to pretend to myself that I was happy and that this was what life was about. And I just, I, I looked for inspiration wherever I could find it and just happened to be my younger brother, you know, was this amazing athlete who was very inspiring to me. And I thought, well, wow, he's so cool. If I could just do a little bit of what he does, maybe my life would be different. It was something that simple. It wasn't that dramatic. And I wasn't looking for anything. There was no grand plan. It was just try to find a little bit of happiness. And in 
pursuing that took me like three years to finally completely quit smoking because I was like a one foot in the pool, one foot out of the pool (laughs) kind of person, which honestly was like symbolic of everything that was negative that was going on in my life. When I quit smoking and then started doing the things he was doing, I realized I had the same engine he did to do these things. And it was like all of a sudden, it was like you find your calling. It's like um, it's like when we started Impossible to Possible, the youth-based foundation that we got going, right? Every couple of years, every year, every couple of years, we do a youth-based expedition. They're free of charge. When I started doing that, I immediately became full. Like I could feel it. This is what I meant to. This is what I want to do. This is what I meant to do in a sense. Like I, I feel like this is my passion. So that just kind of happened as part of the process. Did you find that this process of uh, self-exploration was uh, a catalyst for some of these bigger ideas that I want to do this, I want to do this in a bigger way? I wasn't even running. I was, I was you know, mostly mountain biking and climbing uh, when my brother first got me into the stuff in the late 90s. And um, I realized, I finally came to the realization, look, if this is ever going to get any easier, I got to quit smoking. Hmm. And if I'm ever going to feel whole, I've got to quit smoking. So, I mean, it was a big thing for me. So 2000, basically, New Year's Eve, 99, I smoked my absolute last cigarette. Even though a lot of my friends thought I'd quit smoking, I had not quit smoking. You know, I was very good at hiding it, as many smokers are, I'm sure. And um, I loved smoking. I loved it. So I didn't know how I was going to separate myself from that and everything else that came with it, right? The, the partying I was doing and everything else. So, you know, I move into this this phase in my life from 2000 to 2003, where I, then I started to really take on all the things my brother was doing. So I became a really good mountain biker. And then I slowly but surely got into running. I entered my first running race, which was an ultra marathon. I'd done some adventure racing and, and, uh, tons of competitive mountain bike racing. So I was in good shape, but I entered my first running race ever, which was a hundred miler in the Yukon. And I won it. And through the phases that I went through in that race, the absolute lows, you know, these absolute lows and absolute highs and this realization that, oh my God, it's not a Ray thing. It's a human thing. Like we all have this amazing capacity to be extraordinary. And I stumbled upon it. Like, I don't even know how I did it, but I won this race. And I'm like, running has just taught me something so significant about people in general. Like, it's like, this great secret that we all have this thing in us, this ability to do amazing shit if we're willing to take a chance and, and really, really challenge ourselves. It's like not about running. It's about everything, right? It's about anything that you want to do with passion. So then that led to me saying, I don't know how I did that. I better figure it out. So I started entering ultra marathons all over the world and one led to another and one led to another. And then eventually I thought, wow, it's so cool to see the whole Sahara desert. And then we ran across the whole Sahara Desert. And in the process of running 111 days across the Sahara Desert, I thought to myself, that was so insanely difficult. I have no idea. I spent more time on my feet in that expedition probably than I ever had in my entire life. How did we do this thing? And I also learned in that expedition how voracious an appetite I had for learning. Because I learned about people and culture and economics and society in doing that expedition, in experiencing um, and learning from the people who live in North Africa about life there, that I knew that there was so much more to it, that there was a way I could connect adventure and learning. And I thought, I'm going to just, I want to keep doing expeditions. And I just kept taking on one larger expedition after another, places I was passionate to visit and it's simultaneous. 
I started the charity Impossible to Possible with the goal of giving young people an opportunity to go and experience their own running the Sahara and see what they were capable of. I'm curious because like when I go on a road trip in my car, it feels like that's the time where I become an idea factory. So I'm wondering, is that when you're, when you're in the Sahara and you're in the middle of it in the thick of this grand excursion where you're running, what was it, 50 miles a day for three months straight, 100 days, is that where some of these ideas were born of like what to do next or where to go with this? With Impossible to Possible, that was one of those ideas that just kind of percolated and came about on its own because I'd finished running the Sahara and my wife and I were talking about it. And I said, you know, I wish I could give young people, because I knew what it was like to be 16 and sitting in a classroom and not giving a damn, right? And I thought if there was just a way to give young people an opportunity to not feel that way. Not, I mean, look at lots of really super intelligent kids with amazing grades go on our expeditions. But the point is, is just to give young people an idea that at 16, 17, you can do incredible things and it follows you for the rest of your life. It just, it was an idea that I had, that's all. And these days with I2P, what sort of projects or what sort of experiences are you trying to expose these, these kids as you describe them with this, this, this greater initiative? Well, so every one of our youth expeditions has a curriculum attached to it. So it'll be uh, learning-based. So it could be Brazil and biodiversity. It could be uh, the Lost Coast Trail in California study ecosystem services. So every year, well, we've done, I think, 15 youth expeditions in 12 years or something like that. So we try to do an expedition or two per year. This year, we were working on one in Ethiopia, but it didn't come together for November uh, for logistical reasons. So we're reshaping the expedition. It's going to probably be in the Shipshock Mountains next year. Uh, with the same group of youth ambassadors that were selected. But, you know, we're all volunteers, right, for the most part. And so we try to pull these things together every year with a concept in mind, an idea in mind. It's very grassroots, and we start to pull it together, and we pull it off, and we hopefully make it happen. That's that's kind of how it happens with Impossible to Possible. Every time, the method of communication is different. So our goal is connect students from classrooms to the expeditions and have the expeditions brought into the classrooms. So sometimes it's a live website, sometimes it's social media. We just try to reinvent the way we're doing it every time. We don't want things to be stale. We want to constantly evolve and change. You know, we used the word epiphanies before, you know, like it, it, are those things observable in some of the, the participants, the kids that go through this program? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I've seen it more, uh, you know, sometimes there's massive shifts that these kids go through. Sometimes, there isn't. Sometimes they just, they get, they get, they get the job done, but it's still impactful. It, you know, how impactful something is to someone, again, is very relative to, to an individual, right? So, and how you, how you express it is very relative to the individual. So there's no pressure with that kind of stuff on these expeditions. The expedition exists. We go, we do it, and we make a goal of completing it, and then we move on from there. And so hopefully the youth ambassadors that are on the expedition get what they need from the expedition, but also they're able to communicate and empower the students who are following along. James Galpo, who's an adventure racer, I interviewed him in episode 26, and we talked a little bit about some of the mental challenges of endurance and adventure racing, being exhausted and sleep deprived while pushing forward. I mean, he said that it's, it's a whole new part of the human condition. What, what have you noticed about that part of this experience and do you ever just like obsess over ice cream and hot chocolate and that type of thing as you're right yeah. in the thick of so, these I mean, really difficult you know, situations 
you know, James makes a really solid point and he's such an incredible athlete. Um, you know, in these expeditions, when I'm on expedition, typically the stakes for me are high. So if I'm in a hot desert, like the Namib, we crossed the Namib desert, uh, 1,850 kilometers, myself and Stefano, Gregoretti, we did it together. Sometimes I'm solo. Sometimes I'm with a teammate. Depends. I soloed the Atacama and I soloed the Gobi and I'd be doing a solo unsupported Arctic speed project this winter. But when I'm on these expeditions that require some sort of support because it's freaking hot out, right? I go across mm. the deserts in the middle of summer. That's when I cross deserts. Did a west to east across that valley. This summer, we went nonstop over the Panamint Pass and the Amargosa Mountain Range. And it was insanely hot in that valley in July, man. Like a really, really... So you, when you are navigating from one point to the next, and these points can be quite wide. When we were going through the Namib Desert, we crossed the north arm of the Fish River Canyon, which no one could give us intel on this north arm because nobody had been down in that north arm. Um, it was 50 degrees Celsius plus down in the bottom of this canyon, which we down climbed 1,500 feet or whatever it was to get down into the canyon. Straight across this canyon, it took us 14 hours to cross this canyon. Up the other side, navigating all the way. There's nothing out there. I mean, you just, you know, you, you literally have got to get to the other side or you're going to die, you know, and not to make it too dramatic, but so you're focused so singularly on your goal of getting to that next drop point. The same thing is in, you know, when I'm on an unsupported expedition in the Arctic, all I'm thinking about, man, is like, I don't want, I don't want to see any polar bears. <laughs> I want to just keep moving and I'll, I got to get from point A to point B because they're, there's no checkpoints. There's nothing out there. It's just, I got me, my gear, I got to get there. You know, I got my source of warmth is my tent and stove. It's February in the Arctic or January in the Arctic. It's cold and it's not light for a really long time. You know, the days are very short. So, you know, you're committed. You're so committed. So that endurance aspect, you go to a different place in your mind where it doesn't seem so physically difficult because you're hard, you're hard going after it, right? You're like in survival mode almost. So you're like, I'm, I'm not stopping. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. So There's no like choice at that point. After, there. Yeah. You're just like, exactly. It's not like you can turn around and go back. There's nowhere to go back to, <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. you know, <laughs> you got to keep going forward. Yeah. And that's something I, I mean, I'm sure I'm not alone. It's really hard to relate to, but getting to a point where there is really the, you're past a point of no return and the dis- decision has been made for you. You have to efficiently and safely get from where you are to the ultimate goal. This is something that we rarely experience in our day-to-day lives unless we are you know, <laughs> doing some things like this on the frontiers. When you actually arrive, what is that like? And is it different depending on the expedition? Tell us a little bit about that. There's nobody there, right? So you're just kind of, you, you just kind of got to be satisfied with the fact that you got it done. Sometimes you don't get it done. I mean, I've had expeditions that don't go as planned. It's just the way it goes. If you're not pushing the limits, then you're not going to implode now and then, or things aren't going to implode, right? It's like sometimes you got to pull the chute, you know, and that's just the way it goes. But when you do complete, like when we completed Death Valley, the West to East transect in Death Valley, it's, it's interesting. You know, I get emailed a ton about my longer projects, like 20 days in the Arctic, 30 days in the Arctic, whatever, or, or the Namib Desert was, I can't remember, the Gobi took me 35, I think. You know, these longer projects, the West to East transect was 35 hours. That's how long it took Will Laughlin and I to cross. But dude, it was so brutal. I got 
almost bit by a rattlesnake. Um, we were in the middle of that huge earthquake. We were 20 kilometers from the epicenter in the mountains when that massive earthquake went off in California at 7.2. We were like down the road from the earthquake in the mountains. It, there's just so many things that went wrong during that project. The, the heat was intense. We ran out of water, obviously. Um, we were relying on caches in that expedition that we had preset. It, it, but the first cache we couldn't reach for 50K, you know? So we were relying on rumors of springs and streams 8,000 feet up in the mountains that we would be able to get to before dropping down to below sea level. And so there was all these things that had to go in a certain order for it to be a success. And for it not to be a success would have been a very dangerous outcome because not success would have meant rescue or something worse. So Will and I had planned this thing for a couple of years to be able to do this. And we weren't sure if we'd be able to pull it off. And I'm telling you, the gratification that I got from finishing this tiny little project this past summer was one of the best I felt in a really long time. It was such an amazing feeling to complete that West East. Recovery must be pretty unique depending on the conditions you've been in. But what's it like the days and maybe the week after? And how do you process that whole process then? I come home, I'm... I'm just like ready to assume normal life. Like, I mean, I'm not one of these people that, that, and there's nothing wrong with this. All of our experiences are different. Let me just say that up front, but I'm not uh, a person who comes home and um, for lack of a better word, becomes sort of uh, melancholy because, uh, or, or sad because the, the event is over. Um, I'm glad it's done. I set the goal. I've dreamed, I've lived, I've eaten, I've breathed this place for years. And now I'm ready for it to be done. Let's move on. You know what I mean? And I'm back into home life and hanging with my kids and, and doing stuff with my family. And, and that's what I love to do. So the mental recuperation from these things is instantaneous when I step on the plane. The physical aspect, you know, it depends on the expedition. It depends on how brutal it is. It depends on many factors, how long it takes me to recover. You know, I one of my Longest and most difficult project, arguably will be the most difficult thing I've ever done is coming up next October. I don't want to say anything about it yet because I don't want to jinx it. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the game plan is going to be for that, but I can tell you that I'm at 50. I'm fitter. I feel better because I'm so strict with my nutrition and everything else. I'm taking it seriously. You know, I'm taking it seriously. So I, I'm, I want to be as ready as I can be. You know, going back to that uh, CTV interview, you said something that was just so perfect, I thought. And, you know, after talking to you, even for this brief time, it really reflects you and, and how you carry yourself. You said this, I see myself as a regular person, just like everyone else who's discovered what they love to do. You know, we, we spend so much time worrying about what others think. I mean, you, you think about that, right? Even like, you know, your Instagram or, or, or your Facebook or have the right photo. Got the right photo up there, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, and and you get to a point, I think, in your life where you realize if you're doing something that makes you happy, if you're fortunate enough to find what that is, and everyone has that in them, you just got to find it. What you're passionate about and what you love to do, you're living as real and authentically to yourself as you possibly can. And I truly believe that every person is capable of something extraordinary in their lives. Doesn't matter what it is, whether it's running, athletics, arts, uh, doesn't matter. Cooking, whatever it is, it's your passion. Uh, business, I don't care what it is, but but everybody's got the it factor. It's just discovering what it is 
And when you find it, it becomes genuinely obvious to people when you are comfortable with yourself. Do you know what I mean? And really, you got nothing to prove to anyone. If, if you are happy with yourself, if you can honestly say to yourself, ask yourself, am I happy? Am I happy doing what I'm doing? If you can answer yes, you won the lottery. I mean, really, you got one kick at the can. You know, you have one life. So you make the most of it. And that's it. I've had friends, too many friends, that have passed away early, whether through natural causes or through suicide. And you only wish that they could have had uh, the opportunity that we have to have a longer life. Because there's so much that you want to get done and you have limited years to get it done. And you've certainly collected enough of the data out there, all these great experiences through fitness and through self-challenge and self-research to be a, a great ambassador for that message. And I have to invoke uh, something you said before about your family. I mean, you said you have uh, kids. I mean, are, are you the cool dad, the, the crazy dad, or a little bit of both to them? <laughs> the normal dad. They don't see what I do uh-huh. as anything unusual. It's just that's daddy's job. Like, I mean, I, uh, you know, it's, it's like any of the other dads in my community. I know all the other dads, our kids ski together and all that jazz and uh, are from school and stuff. And we're all just a bunch of dads. We all are doing what we do. Um, Yeah. Obviously what I do on the outside, it looks a little bit, you know, more magnified, right? Because it's, it's out there and it's, and it's all this stuff. But at the end of the day, we put our pants on one leg at a time. I mean, we all do exactly the same thing. So we're, you know, in my community, we're all just a bunch of dads. So my girls see me as just dad. You know, my job is normal. It's never been that extraordinary to them. None of the awards I have, none of the, uh, I have a meritorious cross, a government account. I'm very proud to have these things. It's very generous of these people to give me these things. You know, I have awards from the Senate. I've got all this jazz. Magazine covers, none of it is on my walls. It's all tucked away in a filing cabinet. If my kids are interested in seeing that stuff down the road, they'll I, they know where it is, but I have no need to, for me, again, personal decision, everybody do what they want to do, but I have no need in my house to put those things on my wall to show my kids what I've done. I'd rather hear about what they're doing. Yeah. And I just like, I have a young, young girl and, uh, I talk about that relationship from time to time on the show and, and that's just a great message. I appreciate that perspective. And, uh, one thing though, it's not lost on me, Ray, before I let you go. And I know that you've, you know, you're, recovering from a trip and all the rest but it's it sounds like to me like cigarettes were those years uh, years ago that it doesn't sound like you could quit what you're doing now no matter how hard you tried i've learned to not take anything for granted right you know you, you live for now you know and keep moving forward accelerating you know through life and um i've always remained open to the various different things that i'm doing now you know i started a guiding company for example i never thought i'd do that before I'm writing another book. I always said when I finished the last book, I'll never do that again. You, know, <laughs> so you never know what you're going to do next, right? I would encourage people to open their minds to the potential of what, of what they can do. And instead of thinking about what they can't do, look at life from a perspective of throwing it out there now and then and taking a chance on something. What's the worst thing that can happen? Doesn't work out. Big deal. Try again or try something different. That's that little piece that I've found that's been the most important thing for me. What are they, is that what's the other thing? There are no mistakes. There's only lessons. You know, anything I've ever done in running, you know, the wrong shoes, the wrong backpack will change it. What happens? Then you don't hurt anymore. The backpack fits you. Well, why don't we do that with life? You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
instead of banging our heads against the wall, trying to repeat the same mistakes over and over again, you know, and thank you so much for having me on your show. And, uh, you know, there's not really a finish line. I want to thank you. I mean, you're, you're the driver behind this local race series here in Ottawa, which has given me a whole new exposure to uh, trail running and challenging yourself. I talked about the midnight moose, uh, several times in previous episodes and how, how cool that experience was to be out on the trail at night with all of these people pushing themselves and loving life uh, at uh, three in the morning in Gatineau Park here on the outskirts <laughs> of Ottawa. And so I want to thank you for exposing the, at least the local community here and I know beyond, way beyond the local community to what lies out there and to send the message that, you know, give things a shot. We have that one life to live, give things a shot. And so I want to thank you personally for all that you've been doing. Thank you so much. There goes Ray Zahab. He says to go and meet his kids after school, but I think he's really off to resume his polar bear combat training or something equally as intriguing. I hope you enjoyed him as much as I did. There's just so many lessons from his story, not the least of which was finding his fit and fiercely following it. And I think looking to others that you admire, like Ray did with his brother John, shouldn't be overlooked either. Sometimes we think role models are just for kids, but they definitely aren't. That social side of things can be super important in the overall scheme of things. But I think for me, the message that really resonated the most was his advice about trying new things and taking a few risks if you're feeling stuck. After all, nothing changes by changing nothing. Well, if Ray's exploits have grabbed your attention, and how could they not, seriously, The best thing to do is to follow him on Instagram where he posts about his adventures, his expedition preparation, and his organization, Impossible to Possible. And for the Ottawa runners out there, you've got to come check out one of his trail events in 2020 with Three Beavers Racing. I'll link to all of this stuff, all of this information in the show notes. And hey, while you're at it, why not give this podcaster a follow on Instagram too, at kelly.dell, or the show, at happilyeveractiveshow. Anyway, that about does it. Let's all go ahead and have another week of motivating movement. And of course, until next time, here's to living happily ever active. This episode of Happily Ever Active has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more content on the mental side of fitness. Oh, and don't forget to rate and review the show. See you next time.